0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the New Books Network. Uh, Today, we're here with Professor Emily Mendenhall. She's a medical anthropologist and professor at the Foreign Service School at Georgetown University. She was awarded the George Foster Award for practicing medical anthropology by the Society for Medical Anthropology in 2017. And among many other things, she's the editor-in-chief of Social Science and Medicine Mental Health. Uh, Today, we're talking about her new book, Unmasked, COVID, Community, and the Case of the Okoboji from Vanderbilt University Press. Hi, Emily. How are you doing today?
1: Hi, Austin. It's great to see you. I'm doing great.
0: Wonderful. So why don't you just set the stage for us? I know I normally ask this question uh, as a starting one, but COVID hardly requires a stage. So maybe if you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe the angle that you're approaching this stage from.
1: Yeah, so I'm a professor at Georgetown University and I was in Washington when COVID um started and I'm you know work very closely with people leading the global health security response and you know people in my world are really concerned with politics, you know, the virus risk, responsibility, policy responses, you know, and really taking everything seriously. So After three months in quarantine um, with my two very small children at the time, we decided to head out west to quarantine for the summer with my family, in part because my sister has kids the same age, and we thought it would be both a nice respite from the city and a little easier um, so they could play together. And um, my brother-in-law was actually leading the COVID response in Okoboji. Okoboji is actually a small town um, um, of contingent of. Eight contingent towns um, in the Iowa Great Lakes region, which is in Dickinson County in northwest Iowa, and my brother-in-law is actually from Connecticut, and he moved back home when my sister wanted to start a small organic farm in our hometown. <laughs> And so, you know, I was also interested to see what's it like in Okoboji. Well, as we started driving masks, my husband's also a professor of public health. So, you know, we're in our house, we're constantly thinking and talking about, you know, the complexity of politics and, um, and reality of COVID. But as we started driving west with our two small children and our dog, um, 20 hours in one day, actually, we were just running, you know, peeing on the side of the road, being super careful. You know, this was June of 2020, so we didn't know very much. So we were really cautious. Um, But as we went west, there were fewer and fewer masks and, you know, we could feel something shifting. And then, um, you know, we got there in the middle of the night and in the morning when we went to the grocery store, I went to the grocery store to pick up um, groceries. I looked inside and, you know, I actually did pick up instead of going inside, of course. Um, And, you know, no one was masked, Or like one or two cashiers masked, and it was just so unusual. It felt that we were in a completely different space. Um, And on top of that, we um, we arrived in the middle of an outbreak. So there was a lot of really interesting complexity going there. And that's kind of how we started. And how I started my project, I um, asked my brother-in-law, you know, why is no one masking? It just felt so foreign at that moment. You know, we were all at that, you know, trying to reconcile the first few months of quarantine. Um, And then, you know, us being in such intense um, lockdown for so long, coming to a space where Iowa never shut down. Some people actually went to the office every day during the pandemic. And that is unimaginable for some people, especially on the coast to think about. So the culture of response was all and the politics of response were so embedded, but also radically different. So I started interviewing people in part, just actually, um, I threw together a project, did an IRB in part to just support my brother-in-law. I had no intention of writing this book, Um, but that's some background um, around why I started to do the project.
0: Wow, and what I really like about this about this sort of uh, introduction to the project is the kind of noticing this change happening as you drive west. I mean, this kind of idea and 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 just kind of thinking about society a little bit in America and the way um, we've become divided in different ways. It's it's quite interesting to I think take this observation uh, and and just go with it, uh, especially given the whole situation. So. Why don't why don't we talk a little bit then about um, about kind of what the book is like? Um, you know, this is a book of anthropology, uh, medical anthropology, and I think it might be helpful for the audience to say a little bit about medical anthropology as kind of um, as as kind of an area and and what sorts of techniques that you use in this book because it's I think it is a little bit different uh, than than some of the other books in in a really uh, wonderful way.
1: Well, you know, for the last two decades, I've been studying how people experience and interpret diabetes in new contexts. And a lot of my work has looked at poverty and trauma and what diabetes means to people who've confronted these challenges and how diabetes is different when you don't have access to reliable and accessible health care. And, you know, this has been something I've worked on in India and Kenya and South Africa, in the United States. Um, So I've really been asking people, especially in contexts like Kenya and India, when I was doing those studies, where people weren't that familiar with diabetes care or diabetes itself. So that was really fascinating. But it was even more fascinating to come to my hometown and to see my childhood classmates confront a virus for the first time. In part, you know, doing ethnography at home, which is a critical shift we're seeing in medical anthropology and anthropology in general. How do we reflect on our own communities? How do we do and, and confront challenges and inequities and white supremacy and you know all these conflations in America um, are at the center of where we're going and, and you know some of the hard work we need to do and so you know all of this was right there in front of me and I could not ignore it so I started doing these interviews and doing a lot of ethnography I was talking to people on the playground and you know we are of course mass and then others weren't and you know there are all these challenges in everyday life and um, ever, you know, throughout the entire summer. So I just, I felt compelled to continue this work. And I actually published a piece in Vox in 2020. And I was thinking about the work as having an impact from the beginning. So, um, although I've written much more scholarly books and articles, this piece felt like it really needed to be public facing. So I wrote this piece in Vox, which was the most circulated of anything i would ever written in my entire life. And I think it was mostly the photos of people like half naked drinking with Trump flags in the middle of the pandemic and canoodling. You know, it just, it was a very different vibe of my other work, uh, but it also had a really different message or an important, a really important message of kind of um, just, you know, white privilege, but also just not caring, you know, like, what is this? You know, why... Why were people feeling so reticent to follow government recommendations? And a lot of it was because, you know, in a lot of the book just unpacks this. It was because there was really no leadership at the state level and the local authorities had almost no power. So in, in public health, the supervisors did, but they were all political appointees. So um, and this is a very Republican area. Two in three people voted for Trump in 2020. Um So I wrote the book for um, my community back home, um, where I grew up. My family still lives there. We've been there for five generations since settler colonialism, essentially in the area. In 1907, my family bought a small plot of land there. So we've been there a long time. And, you know, it just felt, it felt like something I needed to write to communicate with people I grew up with. And I actually had a friend um, who's a metal worker who emailed me and he said, I opened the book at eight o'clock and I'm emailing you now at 955. I sat down, I'm not a reader, but I read the entire book. And that was the best feedback I've gotten on the book from anyone because I know that I succeeded because he was engaged. So I think the book is a good example of how we write for a public audience and how we can really get our work read. It, it needs to be a bit different. So the book is written as a story. It's a book, the story of the summer um, and of the community. So it's a, it's a bit different than other scholarship I've done, but it was really fun.
0: That's also the experience I had similar, similar to the email that you had. So why don't so you mentioned a little bit about what you're kind of unpacking from you know from from the research angle and and, and maybe let's be a bit more explicit about it um, you know I'm thinking along the lines of kind of local authority um, versus kind of as you said state level authority um, and, and and as you know I mean this is always I think a very interesting question in SCS is kind of how how do we think about not only the levels of authority, but the way in which people are actually seeing and viewing those? Because um, of course, from our perspective, usually it just looks, it looks like kind of what what we think it is, but oftentimes it looks like something quite different.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the community response was based on the American fiction of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and not needing government or wanting government oversight, you know, and a lot of this kind of indignant anti-government ideology is, you know, deepened by the culture wars, by Fox News, by, you know, all of these um, systems, um, structures and cultural parts of who, uh, you know, especially the American Midwest um, that has deepened divisions and mistrust. So a lot of this really came from that, you know, it's very much a cultural and a political response Um and, you know, I, I I read as I was doing the research, I was reading, I had read it, but I was rereading Dying of Whiteness by Jonathan Metzl, and it just resonated so much with what I was seeing. Um, and I kind of have joked that this is like chapter four, <laughs> or like example four of that work, because, um, you know, I think that really thinking about the politics of resentment and feeling forgotten and feeling ignored is has funneled up and it, I have some interviews that I haven't published yet that really resonate with you know kind of toxic masculinity as well as just feeling misunderstood. So a lot of that came out in the interviews which I thought was really interesting um, and, you know, it came out in this kind of mantra of like, I don't need government. I don't want government to intervene in my life. I will make my own decisions. And a lot of people did. And I talk about Anne-Marie Mole's theory of, you know, logic of care versus logic of choice. And, you know, people were often caring for their loved ones, even though while they said, you know, I will not stay home, I'm going to live my life. But, you know, and part of this was like, but you should stay home if you're at risk, you know, or I'm trying to be careful because my daughter's at risk or my mother's at risk, you know. And people made different calculations of what that risk meant um, and why they did one thing or another, and that really mattered. Um, now, you know, there was no policy um, at the national level, at the state level, at the local level, and that's why neighbors were fighting with neighbors because if there's no direction people have to make their own choices. And when it's left up to people who, you know, are becoming citizen scientists, you know, every, you know, (laughs) Ed Young just published yesterday in the Atlantic that now everyone's an expert on monkeypox, you know, because we think we know, you know, anyone who could do a little math was an epidemiologist. So, you know, people really took it on to do their own research. And and that meant different things, especially when people were, you know, reading different um, pieces of literature or media.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the question of citizen scientists is actually a very interesting one that still needs a lot of work to be done, because on the one hand, um, I think that there's been a kind of push to try to engage citizens in science making. But on the other hand, now that we've kind of seen it, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon that may not have gone the way people have thought. And I'm thinking uh, in particular of one of the stories in the book towards the beginning um, when you're thinking, when someone is, is, is talking about how they're looking at sources, there's kind of this discussion of, you know, oh, I only trust, uh, the local authorities and there's this kind of tension between, um, what you might just see online versus local authorities. Maybe could you say a bit more about, about this idea of like, how were people getting information and, and, and what was the kind of complexities around this?
1: You know, I think a lot of this comes to who do we trust in this global world? Who do we know cares about us? And that's why I think um, people talked a lot about trusting the local authorities. My brother-in-law was talked a lot about. Not everyone knew that he was my brother-in-law. So actually some someone was like, you know, that guy who looks like Lynn manuel Miranda. And it's like one of my favorite things from the whole research study. Cause I was like, yeah, I do. He's my brother-in-law. And, um, you know, he's like, oh, he's the best. And he went on to talk about it. And so I knew it wasn't just people speaking to me. There was a lot of people who I talked to who didn't, you know, don't know we're linked. We have different names, you know? Um, and, So, you know, really trusting that the local community cares for us because I think they were doing immense social media campaigns on Facebook, weekly um, videos, doing a but all they had, all local public health authority had, not cities, but when we talk about towns or counties, the only power they had was messaging. They could do testing. They could do contact tracing. You know, they could care for people. Um. But, you know, they could educate, you know, so that the messaging was all they had. And it, it really had an impact. Um, but again, you know, messaging can't enforce public health recommendations or um, requirements in businesses and businesses had a lot of power. And actually, it's so interesting to think about kind of how businesses had so much more power than states in the COVID response in America, which is, is, I mean, so telling, not surprising. Um, But I talk a little bit about Walmart, which is like such a cornerstone of the community and how Walmart had a national um, policy for masking and everyone masked at Walmart. You know, even some people performed um, resistance, you know, by I talk about the guy who had the MAGA hat on walking through Walmart with the mask around his chin, you know. Um, But most people said, but I'll mask at Walmart. It's not a big deal. But that was because there was a policy that they had to, you know, so it's a good indicator that if there is policy, people will follow it. Um, You know, I was talking with this forum um, advising the Biden administration. They were talking to all sorts of academics about what to do with COVID. And this was in the fall of um, 2020. And we were like, you need to um, require, have vaccine requirements, or, or this was 2021, fall of 2021, vaccine requirements for anyone to go to a college football game. And if you have vaccine requirements for something people really want to do in America, they will get vaccinated. Um, And I think the Walmart example was just so essential because it is really where, you know, even if people are like, I don't want to go to Walmart, they're like, oh, this is the only place I can get this or this or this. So that's a that was so fascinating to me.
0: And, and businesses are truly the, the site of a lot of complexities also. I mean, um, I, at one point in the book, it really emerges, the, there's, I think, a business owner who's saying, you know, what, or maybe it was a local official who's saying something along the lines of, you know, what are we to do? Shut down our kind of summer business and just people are not going to have any jobs or not have any money then. Is that somehow better? And you see, it's kind of saw in this moment, I mean, the really kind of deeper tension, and, and maybe this is going back to what you're talking about care too, right? I mean, the deeper tension of, well, who's caring for these people? The best thing I can do maybe is run my business because, well, then what else do we have?
1: Yeah, well, they're so fascinating because they're um, John Wills is the local representative, and he's the pro tempore of the state legislature. Legislature, and he's representative from the county. And he has this—he has this like column in Dickinson County News that feels to me as it's talking points from the GOP, and it's just very interesting. I'd love to look at the columns of all the legislatures around um, America in small newspapers and see if they're all the same or similar that is actually an interesting project if someone wants to take that on to see how that's all. But one of the things that he wrote, or well, so he wrote about, like, we have to open, we have to open to care for each other. And one of the things, you know, that another local legislator said in my interview, you know, was that we do not have a safety net. We do not care for the poor. We do not care for the unemployed. If we do not open our economy, people will starve. And I thought it was so fascinating, because it was both the, you know, uh, a a legislative um, representative saying, we must open, we have no other choice. And others representatives saying, like, it's because and this, they were all Republican, who I I spoke to some Democrats as well, but I spoke to a lot of Republican representatives. But um, it was so fascinating, because it's like, you know if we do not open the economy people will will really suffer in a totally different way and i do think that in may when the summer season the 100 days of summer which is what people call it when it was upon them people are like we have no other choice we have to open this is how we get money for the whole year we can't go a summer without money and on the, there's there's one argument to be made for these small businesses which so many families have small businesses like almost everyone had i interviewed even teachers had a hustle in the summer which is, you know, something that's just part of the culture there. Um, But, and I call it the kind of the culture of tourism and what that means, you know, there's a huge anthropological, anthropological, you know, literature on the culture of tourism, but, um, but it was um, just kind of fascinating to see that collective turn because people didn't see them as in tandem. People didn't think that they could open carefully they just, you know, went extreme. We're collectively turned tw- turning towards the economy and turning away from coronavirus. And I felt like there was some sort of middle ground that could have been found.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a very interesting point. Uh, and and I think one thing there might be to think about the leadership again. I mean, is you know why why is there no middle ground in the kind of American discourse? But I mean, that's a whole bigger question. But especially for for the policy for the policy implementation i think it's interesting because if you look at different states and different cities even in those different states you you could see kind of middle grounds i mean i i, I lived in chicago during this which is um, which was a very like masked city of course but you know as you drove kind of outside even within 15 20 30 minutes you start to see that kind of change in the number of masks change in the overall attitude um, and it's and it's curious to think kind of you know where, where some kind of middle ground approach could have, could have come, come in.
1: Yeah. And you know, a lot of it is also, I mean, when I would drive out to rural Maryland or Virginia, also we saw the same thing and there was a rural urban divide. Like there is an America in politics and views and culture. Um, people see things really differently in part because their everyday lives are differently different in Okaboji, People would say Okay, you come from the city, right? There are a lot of people. You are more at risk. We live in a small town, right? It is a very different context. And up until May 1st, essentially, they had six cases. By Memorial Day, they had eight. Well, a week later, they had 50, probably way more. There was a huge outbreak um, that I explain. In the book, you know, and eventually we learn where the outbreak came from and it was a businessman trying to do the right thing, getting all of his employees tested. But he put them all on a bus and drove them to a testing site 60 um, miles away because there weren't enough tests for all of his employees locally. And there were all these stipulations because they didn't have a big testing site there yet, which they did a few weeks later because of the outbreak. Um, But, you know trying to do the right thing, but not really knowing what the right thing is, is a really good example of why there's been so much tension in America, because people haven't known what to do. They've made the choice they think is the right choice. And then, you know, it's, it's one poll or another has, you know, been really upset. And, you know, a lot of it comes back to, and at the end of the book, I talk a lot about compassionate leadership. And of course, New Zealand is kind of Put on the pedestal for the first year especially of this kind of compassionate leadership we are a team of five million we can do this together we are going to protect each other you know all of that language mattered so much and from the top from the beginning all we heard was denialism you know like it's not that bad Oh, you know the China virus. You know all of this really antagonistic stuff that created, you know, xenophobia in America. People didn't feel safe because of that language, um, and and you know people didn't believe that they needed to be concerned, and that really resonated with people closely following the president um, in other aspects of their lives. Although the tension between um, big Trump supporters and healthcare workers was something that was fascinating because people who were big maskers nurses, doctors, but may have been Trump supporters. Now, some physicians and nurses and um, health workers, other health workers who were Trump supporters did not actually went against the hospital, which I talk about, but they're the most extremist. But that middle ground is really an area that we need to explore further is how do we find middle ground? How do we find that people agree or go against the political dominant pole? for one thing or another and stick with it because some people really have. So it's just very interesting. There's a lot to learn still from COVID about how we can um, decrease the amount of polarization in American politics, I really think. And, and, and how we're going to approach the next crisis, which is, I mean, we're in the middle of is the climate crisis. We need to learn from COVID and take everything we can to, to cultivate more collective action and buy in and, you know, really have people feel he- heard, even when they have polar views. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I I've been hearing about this kind of idea framed um in in democratic theory a little bit recently. Also, where there's this kind of realization that there's a there's a second component to just finding right answers on problems, because even if say I I found the right answer to climate change and I told you I have it in my pocket, you know if 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 no one's convinced by it, then it's kind of meaningless, right? It doesn't actually it's not actually a correct answer, um, and. You know, what's interesting about this uh, idea, and you evoke, I think, uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, uh, idea of moral moral capital uh, as, as kind of how we're losing out on seeing this middle a little bit by, uh, you know, I had this experience, which you write about in the book, too, of, of when I went to the airport, once the mask mandate was lifted, and you would stand in line and you would see a divided people. It was very, 50% of people had their mask on. It was, it was as if I was at a political rally. Uh, and I could feel it. My plane, uh, to Boston, everyone was wearing their mask. My plane coming back from Florida no one was wearing their mask. And it's just, um, it, it felt political.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, and you know, I, that's one of the things I talk a lot about in the book and, you know, just talking to a childhood friend and she was like, Well, you know, my mother taught me never to talk about politics, religion, or your weight at the dinner table. And now I have to put a mask across my face and wear my politics on my face. It's the most affronting thing I could think of, you know, and it was horrifying. You know, some people told me they did not leave their houses, not because of COVID, but because they didn't want to get shamed. If they wore a mask, someone would shame them. If they didn't wear a mask, someone would shame them. And, you know, that type of shaming, I mean, I was shamed. I talk about this, I think, in the book where I went for a run in my neighborhood after getting back from Okoboji. And I'd been, you know, at the time, it, there was evidence to say that being outside without a mask was fine. A woman stopped me and shamed me. How dare you not wear a mask on the trail? And I was like, you're like six feet away from me. I'm running. It's in the, it was like at two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, or whatever. No one was there. Um, but I didn't run without a mask for another year. It, she, it worked, you know, as does shaming about not masking. I mean, I've also been shamed for my mask. People don't take off your mask. Um, and last summer in 2021, we were, went into a restaurant. We'd been um, floating with some of our family in Montana. Um, and we we're um, in the big hole. And we went into a restaurant. This guy goes, oh, you're not allowed in the restaurant with a mask on of course, like making my kids a mask and, you know, um, and no one else was masked, you know, but I was like, oh, come on, you know, um, that shaming is to people you don't know, was common, you know, people just felt brazen, I still feel brazen. So it's fascinating.
0: Right. And, and, and it's, it's interesting, too. I mean, you use the word shame. I mean, it, oftentimes in these encounters, when we saw them on the news, which we saw them on the news a lot, And it was not not out of compassion. It was not out of, uh, it it was never a kind of, oh, you know, maybe you should wear your mask or um, why aren't you, right? I mean, it was this complicated sort of political arena um, that we all sort of just wore across our faces.
1: Yeah. And we just were kind of okay
0: with the tension.
1: You know, it was just like felt like American politics are so contentious. There are such, there's so much polarization that this just felt natural. And I think we have to really take a step back to think about why is this just normal? I mean, we are, I mean, I don't want to step into abortion, women's rights, but right now, but like, it's the same thing. We're like, and we have done this for decades is just say, there's just, there's A or B, there's no gray area, you know, that it's, you know, we have to take a side, dig in and not talk to each other. And masking was, although (laughs) different things on the line, um was just as harmful, in my opinion, and that's just what we do. And you know, we need to break down that intense polarization. And I don't have answers to how to do that. I do think that talking about it is one of the reasons why I wrote the book to be a public book is so people, you know, so hopefully to start some conversation about that.
0: So, so one of my last questions for you is 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 sort of what did you take away from from this book?
1: Oh man um, writing about your home community is really tricky. And it's not just because, I mean, it was a huge risk to write this book, right? Um, although I think, you know, it's, it was a banned book for a while. No one would sell it, but this woman who's on, in the church choir with my mom decided to sell it. I mean, it's just like so funny, you know, but there's a lot of things that, um, that I just couldn't write about, you know, um, there's so much that I know, and I had to think about what was appropriate to put in the book and what wasn't so much more. It's so different than you spend time interviewing people and you know a little bit about their lives or a lot about their lives, but not their, about their grandma or like all of this history about what they were like in high school or what they did or like you just, you know so much about people, um, especially when you're from, I mean, people who aren't from a very small community might not understand the depths and social pressure and integration and, um, of families and, and lives and histories, you know, um, you know, it's a very powerful thing. So not only was it, you know, what I can write, what is the right story to share? Also, you know, how do I write a book that people won't hate on both sides? And I really thought a lot about that. And although like I am political in the book, I do critique Trump um, because I can't, you can't not, but I did write, I tried to write a very balanced book. That people in my community would read and and engage with, regardless of their politics. And now some people hate it, um, but a lot of people have really deeply engaged with it. I've gotten some really good feedback. Actually, I was really worried about it. And most of the feedback so far has been pretty positive, but those are also the people who would probably communicate with me. So it'll be interesting in July when I go and spend some time there to see how, um, you know, how it goes. <laughs>
0: Well sounds wonderful. Uh well, uh it was so great talking to you and it's a it's a wonderful book that I think uh, even if you're not from Okoboji, you'll find a nugget of it very relatable. Uh we've been talking to Professor Emily Mendenhall on her new book from Vanderbilt University Press, Unmasked COVID Community and the Case of the Okoboji. Emily, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much. Great to chat with you, Austin.